0: Greg, hi. Good to see you. How are you?
1: Great to see you.
0: <laughs> it's been a little while, and here we are in our homes, in our respective homes.
1: Indeed. Uh, we've been here for a while, in our respective homes. <laughs> but you know what? There are worse places to be, to be fair. <laughs> there are. There are.
0: Now, I don't know if you remember, we, we first met, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but, but a few years ago now, and it was following... A, a program that you did um, on pain, I think it was on BBC. BBC, and yeah. I tweeted you and we, and you kindly said, Yeah, let's, let's meet up. And um,
1: yeah. where, when was that? Cough, blimey. That was 2000, I think it's 2012. I think it was 2012. Uh, uh, and it was How to Beat on the BBC. Uh, never got commissioned. And then, interestingly enough, last year, uh, Channel 4 stole the idea uh, and did and actually did exactly the same show with the same script <laughs> without any credit for me and Jack Kreindler, who's, who's the co-presenter on that show. Uh, it was our, our idea and our script. So there you go. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was an interesting program because what we did is we covered a whole host of, of different areas of pain from fibromyalgia into osteoarthritis, um, looking at things, looking at the span really from drug therapy all the way through to, to exercise therapy. Um, and it was, it was well-received, I think, at the time. Uh, and it certainly you know, led to us uh, meeting up and having a conversation because of your, because of your expertise and specialism uh, in that specific area.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely.
1: And, um, and we
0: bashed out a few ideas and, and maybe there's some stuff to be done in the, in the future on that. Uh, yeah. Maybe you have a, an ongoing interest in that. But, um, but just sort of looking at your, your career, um and how you know you've served sport and exercise and sport and exercise has served you I mean it's it's an incredible match really I mean it's really it's So sort of take take us back to how how did you get into sport and
1: what what was the early story it's a match made in heaven is what it is. <laughs> I mean I do you know what it's it's something that I, I talk about an awful lot and I think the the absolute importance of parents <clears throat> is that, that I always think that, that kids are the product of their parents uh, in, in whatever it is they do, whatever, particularly when it comes to things like physical activity. I mean, we know that now much of my time is spent now talking about the role of physical activity. And, and for example, swimming, for example, is that what we know is that, that, that non-swimming parents have non-swimming children. Um, Because it's not only is it sort of the role model they have, it's actually the the drive and the the availability and the access which really drives it. So I I was lucky enough to have a dad who was a boxer, um, an outstanding amateur boxer, uh, ranked number one in the UK at light middleweight when he was younger. Uh, I had a mum whose brother was a professional footballer. Um, She loved sport and was just outstanding at supporting me and my brother. Um, and so you know I, I started swimming at the age of six competitively uh, you could swim wow. you could start a little bit earlier back in those days um, <clears throat> and then obviously went on as a career I was a swimmer I was national champion at 11 and then migrated into a sport called modern pentathlon when I was in my early, very early teens um, and from there I was fortunate enough to I won European bronze world championships silver and went to the Olympic Games so it was a, it was a great career
0: yeah. and, and-
1: and in fact, my brother is an international athlete as well. He's funny. Enough, you put us together and we look like each other, but he's about twice the size as me. <laughs> he was a, a shot put hammer thrower. Uh, so international athletics went to three finals at three Commonwealth games. So it's quite, it's quite a sporting, sporting family. Um, and I think because of that, actually, that that's what dictated where I went in later life. I mean, I, I always had a desire to, to improve my performance and then it was a desire to understand how do I improve my performance and why did my performance change? And then from there, it was really about, you know, having folk, having gained that understanding and knowledge. It was how can I enhance other people's performance? And that was initially started with the Olympics um, because I was the director of research uh, for the British Olympic association and looked after five preparation of five Olympic teams, then went on to set up the, uh, I was the first director of, Uh, Science and Research for the English Institute of Sport, um, then Director of Science for the Irish Institute of Sport. Uh, But it was at that time, um, it it sort of came to me that what we could do is use that science and that understanding and that that expertise and experience in the general population, not only for people who were well in health, but actually, I mean, I I did my PhD in a disease called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a, 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 a cardiac disease, which sadly is associated with sudden death. Um, and looked at the role of exercise in the identification and treatment of HCM and then sort of rolled out over multiple pathologies and now we've just finished a big study with cancer um, a great study just sent off for, for, uh, for review with the British Journal of, uh, British Journal of Cancer uh, we did an awful lot within osteoarthritis etc so, so yeah I mean it's, it's an interesting one where it sort of stems initially from a very sort of sporting Background moving into performance, moving the human performance, and then moving into health and disease.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How how do you think things have changed now in terms of training, when compared to when you were training in the modern pentathlon? How, how have things evolved?
1: <laughs> well, I, I, so the two things. The most obvious is money. Um, you know, people often say to me, "What? Why did why, why you know why study?" So I didn't a, a undergraduate. I did a master's degree in the, in the United States and then did a PhD whilst I was an athlete. Um, and that was because at that time there was no money. There was zero money in sport. Um, it was truly amateur uh, in, in the very uh, definition of the word. Um, and in fact, a lot of people think, you know, lottery, lottery funding has been around for a long period of time. 1998, uh, lottery funding came in. Um, I retired in 97. So. <laughs> so I think you know, money has made a big difference because of that money. Not only does it make difference on the individual level, what it's also done is it's dramatically changed facilities. So when I was training, when I was an athlete, obviously with modern pentathlon, it is one for the listeners, the sport. So it's running, swimming, shooting, fencing and show jumping. Um, but when it comes to swimming, whenever we competed internationally, it was always in a 50 meter swimming pool. Uh, and when I when I was training there were i think it was three maybe four 50 meter pools in the whole of the uk you know Mm. anybody listening who's a swimmer will know places like crystal palace um there was one in coventry there was blackpool which was a saltwater pool Um, and never forget swimming there (laughs) but but i mean you think about it now and actually in terms of facilities i mean there was no no indoor velodromes now there are three uh, there's multiple 50 minute swimming pools, you know, athletic tracks, all those type of things have, have changed so much. And I think what's interesting about that is that, that then underneath that is the, the other thing that's changed an awful lot, and that is technology. I mean technology is just you know, beyond recognition. Um, I, I always it, even from a, a scientific perspective, I remember I always sort of use this analogy, but you know, what, what you currently wear on your wrist with wearable technology, that, that equipment used to take up an entire room uh, when I first started. You know, and again, if any scientist will remember doing VO2 max tests with Douglas bags where you would fill up, you would vent, you would expire into these big plastic bags and then have to analyse them uh, post, post-test. I mean, now you just need a laptop and a, and a, and a mouthpiece. It's, it's amazing how technology has changed, and that's transformed the way in which certainly the information that we collect and, and certainly the science of coaching uh, and the science of training has changed dramatically in that time.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, just, again, just going back to the, 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 that's a good quiz question, isn't it? What well, name the sports of the modern <laughs> yeah. pentathlon. And um, I, I don't know the, the, I don't know if you know the history of how they came together, those five.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who was the founder of the modern Olympics, Uh, back in 1896 um, who was he was a military man and what he wanted was a sport that reflected the military Uh, and so the idea of modern pentathlon is is an officer on the battlefield has to deliver a message from point a to point b and in order to achieve that they need to be able to run to swim to ride a horse to fence and shoot the opposition um, and so it, it evolved from that. And, and interesting enough, up up until certainly in the UK, I mean, up until I mean, I went to the games in '92. Uh, um, it was almost almost exclusively uh, a, a military sport. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know to some extent because it had military origins, but I think actually equally because of the the, the resources facilities that were required, you know, fencing and and show jumping. Not most most towns and villages don't have those those facilities <laughs> yeah. available, you know, <laughs> where the military did. Yeah, and, and amazing sport. And actually, it's the, I think it ranks as the seventh most successful British Olympic sport. Um, so we, we've had a, a huge amount of success at it, um, including Olympic champions at uh, multiple times. You know, so uh, 1976 uh, Olympic team champions uh, all the way through to, to Steph. Um, in 2000 won individual gold so we've had an awful lot of success at it
0: yeah no absolutely but but you you know you started with swimming as you said um but then how how does that move on to right we're going to take up shooting now and oh <laughs> by the way there's a, a horse and we're running i guess you've done um, and the, and also some fencing um and yeah. not in the garden so how, how did that happen
1: well I was, I was born and brought up in Luton so you know like those <laughs> Those things become life skills. <laughs> no, do you know what it was? It was interesting that if for any sort of Olympic aficionados, one of the most iconic moments uh, of Olympic history was in 1976, uh, Montreal Olympics, the height of the Cold War. Uh, and Jim Fox, who was the captain of the GB team at the time, was fencing a, a Russian athlete called Boris Onushenko. Um, And Onoshenko, one of the best pentathlon fencers in the world, was having a great day came up against Jim um, and he did this move called a coupé which is a flick over the top of the guard Um, the light went off to indicate that he had hit Jim Uh, Jim said no he didn't hit me the president said yep he did he said no and so it was the first sit-down protest of the Olympic Games where Jim just basically sat down the piece and said no I'm not moving until his weapon is checked Uh, three hours of argument. Imagine this: this is the height of the Cold War, GB versus Russia in North America. Um, eventually, uh, they agreed and they inspected his the weapon. And inside his guard, if you, anybody knows anything about fencing, you have his guard that goes around the hand, uh, around the hand. Uh, he had a button uh, and he was cheating. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, Onoshenko was ejected from the Olympic Games, along with the Russian modern pentathlon team ejected from the Olympic Games. And then Great Britain went on to win the gold medal. Um, so at the time, it, there was an awful lot of media coverage of it, certainly in the UK.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so there was sort of there was interest and knowledge about the sport. And for me, it came, I was nine at the time, um, but it came a classic, certainly the subsequent years up to about the age of 13, 14, it came a classic time when most people leave swimming. You know, most kids give up swimming at 14, sadly. Um, and so the opportunity arose again with my dad leading the way that he set up with some friends at a modern pentathlon club in Luton of all places
0: wow.
1: uh, called Ligia Modern Pentathlon Club um, and I sort of went you, you do biathlons which are run swims you do triathlons run swim shoot tetrathlons run swim shoot fence and what you do you sort of migrate through uh, until eventually you reach full modern pentathlon so it was a, <laughs> an interesting story of 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 opportunity really yeah. is what it was about yeah. you know do you, do you still ride horses i don't say you know sadly i haven't since i retired i haven't ridden a horse um or fenced uh both of which i mean fencing i loved i i actually um competed for great britain as an individual fencer um and went to international competitions did the world student games as a fencer so it i, I actually i love fencing and i missed fencing um but yeah, and equally, I think this, to some extent I, that I've done that, you know, that chapter was the page was turned. Uh, and since then, I've, I've sort of picked up easier sports, which are ultra endurance. <laughs> if only they were easier. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, this, this is it, isn't it? But actually, it seems that endurance events do seem to suit, let's say, the more
1: mature. Um, Thank you. <laughs> The older. Well, do you know what? It's interesting. And we have this conversation. I mean, I've written much on this um, about the the role of ultra endurance sport and and why we see in older age groups. And I think, you know, there there are multiple reasons for that. Um, But I think certainly what happens with age is knowledge and experience and probably a a reduction in bravado, particularly for the men, bravado and, and testosterone, because ultra endurance is all about pacing. It's about patience. You know, and it's about it's about that ability just to keep one foot in front of the other one pedal stroke in front of the other just to keep going. And so I think from a, a psychological perspective, I think we're probably better suited as we age. Um, but then I think there are other factors as well. I think actually that, that you know, as we age, what we do naturally um, for men, we have this thing called the somatopause. We have a reduction in growth hormone secretion, reduction in testosterone, reduction in muscle mass, um, as do women. And so what you find is that strength and power um, are reduced. And so therefore, the the higher intensity, short duration events become less attractive because we're less suited to them physiologically. Uh, Whereas what we do is we move to a much more endurance based animal. Uh, And so therefore, you know, we can continue to to be successful. And, And also, you know, success isn't necessarily about speed. It's about endurance. It's about how long you can last for, how far you can go. Uh, and so that, that's why I think it's it's quite attractive for the older athlete.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, over the last um, probably two years, I've got into ultra running and, and it's become a bit of a thing um, yeah. for me as, as I, now I know it does for, for, for many people. <laughs> um, it could be worse. There could be worse things to get into at this age. So actually, yeah. it's, it's been a revelation and, and I've sort of linked it in my work and, and such like. And um there's over this this period of lockdown, which has presented so many challenges for so many people, there's also been some amazing achievements. yeah people yeah. doing yeah, these, these incredible right. things. I mean, I've been keeping my eye more on the running but but what what have you noticed in the ultra ultra sport world that's been
1: interesting over the last year or so? Well, I mean, I, from a personal perspective, I think what was interesting was that literally just before lockdown, I returned from a challenge. I was supporting uh, an American client, a guy called Kyle Vogt, uh, who you might have heard of because he's he's not necessarily because he's a vegan, but he is a vegan. And he actually funded and uh, executive produced Game Changers, this this mm-hmm. film that sort of gone viral around the world about uh, mm-hmm. veganism. Um, Lovely fella, uh, lives in San Francisco, but I, I trained him uh, and then accompanied him on breaking the world record for seven marathons on seven continents. Um, and that was in February, almost a year ago now, um, where, believe it or not, uh, including flight time and running time, we completed seven marathons on seven continents in 81 and a half hours. What? I mean, I know it's it's, it's one of those things. Even when I say it now, I think, how is that possible? <laughs> wow. But just incredible. You,
0: you must have had an amazing organizer for the first, you know, to to link it all up. I mean, that's the. But,
1: but well, I wow. mean, logistics are everything, oh. and obviously, money makes a difference because you've got to pay for for you know, private jets to fly you around the world. Um, and and for those people, it just all the interest because I think it actually is important to me in terms of of the green credentials of a challenge like that. We used the most economic uh, plan, a G3000 at the time um, to reduce our carbon emissions. And also what we did is we carbon offset by planting trees um, at the end of the project. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, just incredible. So into, I mean, but and again, one of those challenges where you sort of look at and it, it's, it's what we, interestingly enough, what we did is we actually broke the world record for touchdown on seven continents. So, irrespective of the marathons, it's never been done as quick. 76 hours, I think, was, was, the, was the time it took us to actually touch down the seven continents. Um, but what an adventure. You know, Antarctica was incredible. Uh, and, and the interesting thing, actually, from, a, from an ultra-endurance perspective, was that the, the challenge was obviously logistical, um, but it was also a recovery, a massive recovery issue. And, and you know, where you would be interested is, is pain management. Um, because the, the amount of damage that you're doing uh, with multiple marathons interesting enough not only about loading so it wasn't just about joint pain and, and, and muscle pain is that that Antarctica was minus 10 um, and 10% humidity uh, and then within 24 hours we were we were running in Panama um, and it was 40 degrees centigrade and when we started and I, I'll show you the videos it was almost 100% humidity you could you could see it through through our we're running at four o'clock in the morning through the, the the headlamps. You could actually see the the moisture in the air is amazing. So so physiologically, you know, the demands, the damage of of you know inflammation, par example, but m- multiple other things from environmental extremes and rapid changes in those environments was was truly outstanding. I mean, it was it was gargantuan. So it was it was a great it was a great challenge. I mean, we were successful, but it was it was great to be part of something like that three days later we're in lockdown, but there you go.
0: <laughs> well you took on the timing just just right. And yeah we did. Yeah. And, and what's great there for you is the fact that you you know you you've done it as well.
1: Yeah. Listen, I I I love challenge. You know, I mean if you think about things that I've done with sport relief and comic Relief, I mean I've looked after 32 major challenges. Um and, and people say to me, why you know like, I mean I do it all for free. You know, so I don't I don't get paid for any of <laughs> that stuff. Um but I do it because I love it and it's just I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's an adventure. It's, it, 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 I mean, and it, and that's not to say that it isn't utter purgatory at times, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you think about the, the ones that we've done with beast of the East, I remember with, Out with Zoe ball, um, where it just monsoonal uh, on the final day of her challenge, I remember swimming across Lake Windermere with, with Davina McCall at five degrees centigrade. I mean, it just, you know, the, I mean, it is purgatory at times, but, but the, the, and and i guess this is important for listeners actually that actually it, it the outcome is where the, is where the the real the real euphoria comes from uh, as well as actually the process and and the highs and lows of the process but getting to the end you know reaching that goal is so important and and it, and it's 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 alluring and addictive and it's it's why i keep going back yeah
0: yeah no absolutely absolutely and you know with with those moments because you're you're dealing you know you're working with and you've worked with a number of of celebrities um who live a privileged life in in many ways and then and then go and, and and do something like that which is very tough and you know weather conditions play such a big role in that how do you how do you motivate how do you motivate them
1: that's it's, it's a great question, and I think the, the, the interesting thing about that, uh, Richmond, is that it, it, these guys are in Congress. You know, what, what makes them what makes them a, a interesting and attractive to the viewing audience? I think it's the fact that you look at you know you look at Joe Brand who's walking 140 miles from Hull to Liverpool, and you think, what is she doing? You know, it, it's the incongruity of, of them, which, which is actually the, the really sort of the, the really interesting factor about it. So, I mean, there's no doubt about it. You know, these guys. Even people talk about David, David Williams, as if he was some sort of competitive swimmer before we swam the channel. I mean, he could just about make a mile in the pool. uh, And we had to do what was, what eventually ended up around 24 miles in open water. You know, I mean, they they are so far off being uh, part of that world. It's truly incredible. But I think, you know, from from a motivation perspective, I think what's always interesting to me is often people talk about motivation as if it's intrinsic, you have motivation. And 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 if you haven't got motivation, what it does, it suddenly appears. You know, on a sunny day, all of a sudden you're motivated. (laughs) Uh, And and it really is. It really isn't that. I mean, I think the way to think about motivation, to my mind, is I I talk about it in this sort of triumvirate of of things. And I think the first thing is about belief. And I think what you what you have to do is believe that it is achievable, whatever that goal is that you've set. And I think that, that then comes back to this idea of goal setting that. To, to my mind, the, the goal setting is fundamental to, to the planning process. And the long-term goal is important. But what's what's more important is actually the medium and short-term goals. Because the medium and short-term goals, particularly short-term goals, become very much achievable. Mm-hmm. And because you look at them and think they are achievable, albeit they are challenging, what that does is it drives belief. You start to believe that you can get to that next stepping stone. And, and with that belief, what you then do is you then commit what's required. You commit the resources, you commit the time, you commit the effort. Uh, And and with that commitment, because you believe, because you've committed, what you do is you start to see success. And when you see success, what that does is that elevates motivation. And so motivation is the product of the process. It's not something that suddenly appears. And of course, once you become more motivated, what that does is it drives belief. And with that belief, you drive commitment. With that commitment comes success, and so therefore greater motivation. And so what it is, it's self-fulfilling yeah. in that process. And so I think you know, again, I think one of the things, particularly at this time of the year, you know, when it's drab and it's dreary outside, short daylights, you know, and at the moment here it's absolutely hooning down with rain. <laughs> I think you can say Look, there's no motivation, but but again, the motivation is linked with with actually achieving something. And so I think you know, set yourself a goal. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get outside the door and I'm going to I'm going to walk and and I'm I'm going to set a distance that I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk for five thousand steps. or I'm going to walk around the block. And then what you do is you go out there and all of a sudden you just you taste that success and suddenly you start to think actually well, it doesn't matter if it's raining because I can achieve this. And I think with, with with the celebrities what what I do very very closely is I link everything that we do around the plan, which is linked to with those short-term successes which then develops this and and the other thing to think about is that people always say to me oh you know you must be a great motivator well success for me is creating intrinsic motivation is that whoever i'm working with is is self-motivated yeah because i'm not going to be there every session i'm not there every step of the way And, and so actually intrinsic motivation is far more powerful than extrinsic motivation yeah. So that, you know, that that's, that's really what I strive for. And I mean, I, I'm touching wood as I speak, you know, we've been fairly successful with it thus far.
0: Well, hu- hugely successful. I mean, the, you know, the challenges that have been um, achieved, obviously the, the money raised, I mean, phenomenal, phenomenal sums of money. Yeah. So, you know, it's fan- fantastic work.
1: And, that, and that's, um, you tell what, Rich, I mean, you, you touched on a really important point, actually. I mean, we've with Comet Relief, for example, we've raised over 50 million pounds for, for people less fortunate than ourselves. And I think to some extent, I think what, what everybody needs at some stage is this, what, what I call the central motivator. That one thing around which everything else is built, you know, the, this central motivator, the plan is built upon, the short-term goals are built upon. And I think, you know, it's, and, and one of those central motivators for something like sport relief and comet relief. I mean, for example, a, a great example of that. I remember when we swam the Thames um, and uh, and before that, me and David visited a project in Ethiopia and we, we visited a refuge um, for young girls who had been systematically raped by by their family and the militia. Wow. And this this place that Comic Relief was funding was a, a haven for them. But at the same time, as well as being a haven, it was an education because they were being taught how to work in the hospitality industry. I mean, it was a wonderful project mm-hmm. and, and these, these children uh, were just beautiful. And I remember one little girl, she was, a, uh, she was about four years old. The moment we arrived on this project, she took hold of my hand and followed me around as we walked around and met everybody. And she didn't let go of my hand for what was an hour and a half. And, and I think those moments create that central motivator, that reason, that why. Because I think sometimes we always look for the why. Why am I doing this? Yeah. You know? And I think it's always good to reflect back on that reason because, you know, however bad it was in the middle of the English Channel or halfway up the Thames or, you know, up Snowden at minus 30, it pales into insignificance based upon that central motivator. And so I think, you know, and, and, and we can all do this in our lives, I think, is that there is always a reason. There's always a reason to push a little bit harder, to go that little bit further, to work that little bit more than we think we can if we're doing it for the right reason yeah no
0: absolutely you know in those tough moments those images probably came to your mind and and sort of reset your your focus no right you know we're doing this
1: yeah absolutely right and and, and certainly with with uh, I, I mean i you know i distinctly remember with david for example uh, he met a young man called philip uh, and was really moved by him in in africa and, and, you know, and, and bearing in mind that 15% of the money is spent in the UK. I mean, I've visited some projects in the UK, which were just you know, incredible. I mean, really incredible projects offering hope to people. Um, but I remember with, with David, it's not something, that central bait is not something that will drive daily motivation. So it's, it's not the one thing that actually creates everything and keeps you buoyant all the time, because we are human. <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. But it is certainly in those real moments of, of darkness. During that, during the challenges that we face in life, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think actually that that's the moment to draw upon them. And I remember, you know, mentioning it to David very few times, but but at, at the right time, at those crucial moments, that's when it matters. And I think you know we can all learn something from that.
0: So you you would sort of reserve maybe um, uh, an image or or some words for a moment where David or one of the others might sort of go. Oh. Don't really, don't really fancy it today.
1: <laughs> I can't. Or it, it, or those those immortal words of I can't. You know, words that we've all used. You mm-hmm. know, we I can't can do it. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that what it is, it's actually. And it, you know, I mean, I, obviously, when it, when it comes to things like motivation, we we I do an awful lot around positive self talk and all those factors, which are really really important. But sometimes I think what you need is just a a, a, a hook to hang it on. Uh, and I think that, that sometimes just being reminded about why or how, or, or actually just being reminded about others. You know, to some extent, what we're doing there is just saying, look, however bad we think our position is, imagine what it's like for others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, that's a lovely hook to hang the, the, the ensuing conversation off of, that positive self-talk that comes off the back of it. It gives you a center point. It gives you that central motivation in order to actually create that, that discussion with yourself. But that—I that, mean—that's that, positive self-talk. I think is—it's one of those things. It, It's—it seems easy. Uh, it's quite difficult to do in, in in practical terms, but is incredibly powerful. I mean, in, incredibly powerful. As as negative self-talk is incredibly damaging. Yeah, you know. So getting that balance right is really important.
0: I think some some people will still kind of claim that you know oh just thinking positively you know that does nothing it's all psychobabble but but they forget that they're spending a lot of time responding biologically and behaviorally to all their negative self talk so yeah. so that you know that you can't have it both ways of course and um you know, going back you you mentioned how you know a number of kids will give up swimming and i think we see that seemingly across a whole range of of sports and yeah. and you know all these these practical things that you're, you're saying here around motivating, you know, celebs and, and, you know, elite athletes and people doing these amazing sort of ultra events, they're, I think they're equally applicable to, you know, young kids, well, to everyone. We, we can all apply it in our own way.
1: Yeah. yeah I just I, I, you know what, I mean, I've got three young children, so, <laughs> you know, and I think actually doing it with children is far more difficult than it is doing it with adults uh, because what, what they lack is experience. You know, they lack the experience of seeing what what else happens in life. And I think actually, you know, to some extent, it's easier to describe and explain uh, and to move adults than it is to to move children. But I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are in a I mean, we're in the midst of a of a of a pandemic, which is a year old now or just over a year old. But alongside that, concomitant with that, we are in we are in an epidemic of inactivity uh, and an epidemic of poor health in our society Uh, and and what it comes when it comes to inactivity which obviously I spend a huge amount of my time you know talking about and trying to promote is young children and it's interesting so my daughter's 15 but what's interesting is that at the age of 14 if you look at the data what you see is that, that young girls fall off a cliff when it comes to physical activity. Uh, and the sadness of that is that invariably what, when they fall off that cliff is they are lost of physical activity for the rest of their lives. So the so inactive children become inactive adults. Mm. Um, boy, boys cliff is not quite so dramatic, but nonetheless, there is a falling physical activity level. But that, that for girls um, leads to what we'd see now as, as this gender inequality uh, in physical activity, which, which sadly through this pandemic is growing exponentially um, for multiple reasons, for social reasons, because kids are being homeschooled and and the matriarch tends to take charge of that or in in certain households, Um, but also all the way through to the the fact that gyms are closed. In fact, what we know is that group sessions are incredibly important to women uh, for their physical activity and and that's no longer available. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are lots of reasons why it's happening, but, but my real worry through this is the fact that what we've got is we've got this widening gender inequality, um, which, again, <laughs> reflects directly on to the, the future of our society, children, because inactive parents effectively have inactive children. And so, you know, there is a legacy to this pandemic, which goes far beyond COVID, yeah. um, which I've written about, you know, multiple times in, in the press Um, Which I think is something that we really do need to address very, very importantly, because otherwise, you know, guys like you and I uh, will be much busier in future years, which is not a good thing. You know, it might be a good business model, but it's not a good thing for the health of the the nation.
0: No, absolutely not. And, you know, the 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 importance of of women in in society um, on on all sorts of, of levels um, you know, society just cannot function well without healthy women. Absolutely right. Um, and, and, it, and as you said, you know, it's these habits start so, so young. And, funny, and I was, I'm doing a talk tonight for We Are Girls in Sport, and they're very much looking at this, this problem and, and, and what can be done positively to, to influence this and yeah. get that participation up um particularly in girls that's that's their their purpose what 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 do you see are the main barriers then to to girls continuing to participate in sport or or even starting what's what's stopping them from from doing these things
1: (laughs) well you want me to start ranting now is that what i can i can i can feel my wife's eyes rolling into the back of her head (laughs) as we start speaking now uh, do, do you know what I, I think? The thing is that it, it's multiple. I think the bottom line is that, it, and it ranges from from um, from accessibility um, all the way through to uh, social uh, a social understanding around things, particularly around things like you know press and media. I mean, I I'm, I constantly lambast the media. I mean, take a look. I mean, just recently, I looked through the sports pages of a broadsheet um, twenty. 9 i put this out on social media you know as my ranting platform but 29 pages of sport um and there wasn't a single mention of a female athlete never mind a female team or a female sport a female athlete not a single mention in 29 pages wow. you know, and and then you look at the coverage of sport of female sport on television i mean virtually non existent i mean the the, the real track you know the, the tragedy from a sporting perspective this year was the loss of the Olympics because it is the one time every quadrennium that we see female sport, you know. So I think you know at, that, at one end of the spectrum, what we have to do is we have to create role models and we have to create aspiration for young for young girls, because I think that it really is very very important that they see what 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 is off, on offer to them, what they can achieve. Um, that's one thing. I think at the other end of the spectrum, I think that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a governor at my kid's school and, and, you know, I'd often bang on about the national curriculum and, and the, the errors and the shortfalls of the national curriculum. But I certainly think, you know, the, the P national curriculum um, has done nothing for female participation. Um, because I think what, we, what we've got to be able to do is we've got to be able to evolve. And we've got to be, be able to evolve with children and offer them things that are interesting to them. And I think many schools are doing that. And, and I think education does a very, very good job but I, th- but I think generally the system doesn't support this ability to offer what is required uh, for children. Um, I think add on top of that, you know, there is massive social inequality in, in, our, uh, in our society. And, and sadly, what, what COVID has done is it's polarized that and, and increased this uh, socioeconomic inequality. And so ex- ac- ex- uh, access to facilities drives an awful lot of this as well. Um, you know, one of my big one of my big pushes. I'm an ambassador for the Royal Life Saving Society. One one person drowns every 20 hours in the UK. We're an island nation, and one person drowns every 20 hours. Uh, and yet, one in three children leave primary school unable to swim. Now, that is a national disgrace, if you want my opinion. Mm. Uh, what's interesting in that is that in the national curriculum, it actually says that children should be able to swim when they leave primary school. But of course the problem is that it's actually access you know how do we get are there the availability of swimming pools within a geographic location that, that is accessible um, has the school itself got the money to transport those children uh, is it a priority enough in the curriculum when if you take out you know the the, the obsession with sats um, and, and stem subjects that actually you know swimming is a life-saving skill (laughs) Um, and so I think you know I think uh, there are multiple problems uh systemic problems uh with why uh there is an inactivity epidemic Uh, but I do think that it probably um there is a greater problem for young girls and women in in our society when it comes to that than there is for boys Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's why we see this gender inequality
0: yeah yeah, no, absolutely. Rant over. <laughs> <laughs> we, we need rants, you know. We, you know, we need people to stand up and say, "Look, this, this is not working." And I suppose with, again, with with COVID, if we if we're going to find some pluses, you know, there's, it's made people much more aware of this social inequality, which is for health, for education, for for sport. You know, it's it's across the board. And it's saying, well, what, you know, what, what can we do as inherently a very wealthy nation to, to make things accessible or, or create more things that people can, can access? Um, I know there are a number of priorities and, and we don't seem very good in our Western world to be thinking about shaping a positive future by investing in kids' health now to see the, the long-term effect. It's all very reactionary. Well, do you have no, any
1: thoughts but, or ideas on, on our... And again, what, you know, what the system drives, though, Richmond, is exactly that, is that we have a political system, which is a four-year cycle. Uh, and so actually, thinking beyond that thinking beyond that time period is not something that governments do well. And that's an apolitical statement. I'm not talking about any specific government. It's just the nature of the system is about re-election. And so, what, what, you know, why would you spend money now to enhance the health of a nation that that a future government that may not be your government will benefit from. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, I think that, again, the systemic problems that we have and and, and to my mind, it's why, you know, those type of systems should be out with the government. You know, we should have things like, you know, and and add on top of that. and, And I'm as you are, I'm a very big supporter of the NHS. But I think, you know, what we've migrated to is a a disease management service instead of a health promotion service. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's, you know, for for multiple reasons, because sadly, we've got so many sick people in this country. We've got 5 million type 2 diabetics rising at a rate of some 700 a day in the UK. And of course, you've got to invest in that. You know, you've got to invest in treating that disease. So I think what it does, it takes a much longer term view of thinking that, that the only way to my mind the only way that the nhs can survive long into the future is prevention it's not about continuing to plow billions and billions of pounds into a treatment disease a disease treatment service what we've got to do is we've got to stem the flow of people coming into that service and what that means it's about health promotion and, and being absolutely targeted on that health promotion if you if, to quantify 0.001% of the NHS budget is spent on prevention. And the vast majority of that is spent on uh, things like uh, drug, uh, drug education. Um, I'm not saying they're not important, but what I'm saying is yeah. that, that there's so little money which is spent on, on health promotion. And much of it is actually not spent on health promotion to what we would understand as being health promotion. So I, th- I think there's got, there's got to be a fundamental shift in thinking of what the future of health of this of this nation, and you know, again, this is apolitical because there are lots of other countries. You know, you've only got to look across the Atlantic to, to see what's going on in the U.S., and there are there are plenty of of first world Western countries who simply haven't grasped the concept. Um, and I think we, we, you know we, we're moving, and you know, you and I see this uh, sort of moving at, at what is a glacial pace, I think, but we're st- certainly starting to see the, the private health sector recognize that actually they, they can make more money by treating less people. And so what that means is by promoting health in insured individuals means that they present for support much less. And so therefore they spend much less on them. Mm. So I think, you know, the, the health insurance, uh, or, or certainly, well, certainly the health insurance agents are starting to understand it, albeit, I mean, glacial, I mean, I can still only point to one real Company who are doing who are really doing it.
0: yeah uh,
1: The others, to some extent, pretend they're doing it, but what they're doing is they're fundamentally risk stratifying. Uh, they're not trying to promote health; uh, they're just risk stratifying to reduce the the burden, you know, of, of their cost. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit skeptical, but uh, but nonetheless, that's that's what it well, is.
0: Well, no, I t- I totally agree with that because you know the priorities are not really where where they should where they should be. It's uh, it's not the long termism. Um, and that's that's a problem. It's a problem for the person. And actually, they the long run. They're not really going to be saving themselves much money. I I don't think. No. You're not you're not dealing with any issues. You're just sort of putting a plaster on it. Really.
1: I think I think the interesting thing, Richard, on that, is that because that sounds like a wholly negative diatribe on you're the state of the nation. But I think you know, to my mind, what 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 we should be doing for people is helping them realize that that health is. Is very much a personal responsibility not entirely not entirely but but there is a huge amount that we can do personally for our own health to optimize our own health to reduce disease and I think to some extent what we, we sort of get lost in again the messaging of that you know we spend our entire time lambasting obesity because of an image crisis not because of what goes on underneath the bonnet, not because of the health implications of, of obesity, but actually because of what you look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, if, if we can educate appropriately, what we can do is we can tell people that people have the power in their own hands to make a difference. Um, now that, that, certainly the wealthier you are, the easier that is, without any shadow of doubt. So socioeconomics do, do, do play a part in that. But, but nonetheless, there are things that we can all do to enhance our health some of which are entirely free, physical activity being one of those.
0: Well, that's it, isn't it? There's there's a number of simple, inexpensive, or indeed free things that that pretty much everyone can can do and access. Here's a radical idea. What what do you think of this? A compulsory subject that begins in primary school that is called how to look after yourself or something like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, listen, I, I, I... well, it's not that radical to be honest with you uh, because it happens elsewhere I mean I, I, I studied at a university uh, in the states Frostburg State University part of the University of Maryland where in order for a for a student to graduate they had to pass that what you've just described they had to pass a class which was Exactly as you describe it, right. it wasn't afforded a huge number of credits. In fact, it was probably one of the lowest credits uh, of any course that they took at the university. But they couldn't graduate without it. Mm. You know, so it, it's not beyond the wit of man, and actually, is being done in across the world. And I think you know what what to some extent. You know, I think education has uh, PHSE, uh, which in part in part is answering that question, um, but, but I, I'm, I'm, to be fair, I'm not an, a specialist on the, on the curriculum of PHSE, um, but, but I think, I, you know, I think it, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not a radical idea. I think it's actually a very sensible idea. And I think actually, you know, to some extent what we've got to do as well is look beyond at the moment. I think, you know, if we educate children now, children become the parents of the future. And so therefore there is a legacy to that process. I think probably what we need to do at the moment is actually educate parents as well at the same time, or to create some sort of system where we can offer the advice and support for parents uh, so that they can then support their children and those children then become the parents of the future. So there is legacy to it, but it's not, it it definitely isn't a radical idea, Mm. Richmond. I think, and I think it's something we should take a much closer look at and take much more seriously. Yeah,
0: there's. I mean, there's definitely time in, in my view, in and, and it, because it's so important. And in a sense, if you, you know, if you're getting the kids engaged at a young age, and they're enthused about it, and, th- and it's fun. You, know, you can make this stuff fun around, you know, what you eat and drinking and moving and breathing, teaching everyone to breathe properly and all that sort of stuff. Um, they'll take it home may even educate their parents who might be resistant yeah. to being told by other people, you know, the experts, that this is what you should yeah. be. Doing. I don't think there's any doubt about that, actually. I
1: think, you know, that, that children can be leaders in this process. Uh, as my little boy crawls behind me to get his <laughs> printing from his homeschooling. Right? <laughs> <Hello? laughs> but it is, you know, and I think they can lead, they can, you know, I mean, it's interesting when they come, having been taught something at school, they come home and they sort of Lambast, lambast parents for, for doing something which they've been told is bad for them or you know so you know there, there is a you know there's a feed forward as well as a feedback mechanism that, that, that can occur but yeah. but at, at some stage you have to have that type of approach uh, in, the, in order to change behavior and, and we know that behavior change is probably one of the most difficult things to achieve I mean you know this only too well um, and, and it is even for people who are motivated to change behavior, it still becomes very difficult to do. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, it, it's what is required.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> There's um,
0: I, I found that things like motivational interviewing techniques very helpful for these these situations, because it's also, you know, is what we do. We spend time with people and we, we try and pass on information that, that's practical, where someone's going to go, oh, yeah, I, I can I can do that, you know, little little piecemeal. Yeah. But, but really sort of helping them to come to the conclusion that it's useful for them to make that choice. And so no one likes to be told what to do. No,
1: no absolutely right. And, and that, you know, it brings us back to sort of one of our earlier conversations about intrinsic motivation, is that actually it's not, being dictatorial is not advantageous in this environment. You know, none of us, I don't care who they are. I'm one of the worst in this. Nobody likes to be told what to do, all right? And I think, you know, one of the big problems with lockdown is actually that, is that people bulk against it because they're being told what to do. Um, whereas actually, if it comes from their own idea, if it becomes intrinsic, then it's it much more easier to to, to, to bring into action. Uh, and so therefore to change behavior. So I think you're right. And I think also the other thing, Richard, is, is that we, there is a danger in assumption. You know, assuming that people know how to do it, people know how to improve their quality of life, how to change their diet, how to increase their physical activity. It's simply untrue. And I think that that what we have to do is make sure that what we are doing is we're providing solutions for people across the spectrum of knowledge and experience and expertise, not just simply assume that everybody has got a level of of experience and expertise. I I think we, and that's not to say that we need to talk down to people. What we have to do is we have to broaden our approach to the information that we give so that it is available for everybody, that it truly is information for all, uh, which again, I don't think we do particularly well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Greg, I mean, you, you inspire and encourage lots of people. um, (laughs) And and that's the whole purpose of this, this podcast, of course. So who, who are you inspired
1: by? Wow. (laughs) That's That's a tricky one. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, people often sort of say to me, what, what, who's your hero? And I think it's a very simple answer. And that was my dad uh, who inspired me because I've I've never met a man who worked so hard and was so dedicated to, to supporting others, to his family. Um, and I think, if anything, I aspire to be him. Um, and, and, and that that is certainly, you know, if, if we talk about that central motivator, I think that's one of the key motivators. My mum was the same. You know, who was that classic sort of matriarchal uh, homemaker? We can't call them housewives anymore, but homemaker whose role is absolutely fundamental. Um, and she was just amazing as well. So I think, you know, th- th- there's that element to it. Um, I think, you know, w- w- when I look around often, I mean, I, I you know, for example, doing, I didn't just finish this big study with cancer patients, and I think you can draw something from from people who are going through really adverse situations and look at how they are dealing with it and coping with it and i think what's interesting is often i talk to, to you know our cancer patients and and they feel they're not coping well or they're not doing a great job or they're not inspired or motivated and actually you know i always say to them the complete opposite of that <laughs> you know what you are doing is truly inspiring truly inspirational and so I think, I think to some extent, I think inspiration is all around us. I think for me, I just look around, and, and I, I get it, not specifically from one place. Um, I, I get it from multiple places, and I think I try and draw upon it whenever, I, whenever I see it. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that part of that is just keeping an open mind to what people are achieving. It, and it's not, it's not celebrities. It's not people who are earning a gazillion pound a year. It's not it, that they're not. To my mind, and not the, the the things that motivate me, it's actually it's actually what you know. If you want to put it in a you know that horrible term of ordinary people, I just I've just um, just released two of two of my films. I've got a production company. We've just released two films, two multi award winning films. But one of them called the "Extraordinary People," about uh, a woman Sylvia uh, Mack, who's a wonderful woman who's a burn survivor. Um, and I, I trained her to swim across the bosphorus from asia to europe mm-hmm. uh, a really iconic swim um, mm-hmm. an amazing journey i mean it, it, you know and again if the listeners it, it's free to access on my website yeah. um, <clears throat> and it's it's one of those inspiring stories that comes from from ordinary people you know i think inspiration is all around us and it's just it's just tapping into that
0: yeah yeah so no it is seeing someone who who just does something like that off their own back you know most of the resources are coming from inside them i mean i love the fact that you really focus on that inner motivation that that inner drive um you no know, that's that's incredible so so people can find those those videos on your on your website
1: yeah so the, the white answer white with a y because i like to make it difficult <laughs> the, the white answer.com and, and and actually on that you know you can come on and ask questions so you can ask me any question you like uh, within my sphere obviously um and uh, and there's a whole host of of content in there um from some incredible people that i have sort of interviewed over over my time uh, on various different subjects uh, and just you know just I, I just think to my mind it's just about sharing experiences of others uh, so we can we can gain from that and i think we can gain an awful lot from from the experience of others yeah,
0: absolutely, and and you've written a lot as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I've, yeah, I've done a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoy, I do enjoy writing. I mean, I write an awful lot, sort of like for for, for media. So I'm on the editorial board of Waitrose Health, which is their uh, their magazine, but I also am a contributor to Waitrose Weekend, which is their weekly paper. Um, a, a, a fair amount in the media itself. Um, from magazines through to, to papers. And then, and then obviously books, I've written eight, eight books on various subjects. Um, Achieve the Impossible is probably the one that, that most relates to our conversation here um, because it talks about sort of my, my method for achieving success. You know, okay. what, what, what the process is that I employ. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do, I, I enjoy writing, but I think, I, I think to some extent, going back to what we said earlier about actually access and, and information for all, I think what, what, what is incumbent upon us is to make sure that what we do is we spread that across all platforms. Mm-hmm. So for all the way from social media through to print media into radio and and and, uh, and, and beyond. Um, and, and what I try and do is just sort of spread, spread my time as much as I can across all of those. Uh, and and albeit that the message is similar, it's slightly different and it's translated slightly differently.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, absolutely.
0: And if if someone wanted to be trained by you how how would
1: that happen oh you don't want to do that let me i know it you, sounds Rick. nasty it <laughs> it sounds nasty, but with good result. <laughs> people aren't queuing up for it let me tell
0: you i mean the answer
1: to that is i don't challenge yeah i mean i i don't tend to do i don't tend to do it is the answer to that i think you know it's that that sort of personalized training approach <clears throat> i don't i don't do a great deal of um is the answer to that um i used to i used to operate a clinic out of harley street at uh, the center for health and human performance but which i no longer do um, <clears throat> so i you know I, I do it occasionally um but not often i think that you know there are uh, so many great people out there who can support people looking to challenge themselves yeah. um, i mean really there are some great people and it's just fi- it's just finding the right person and, and I think on that, what, what's really important about that, um, per, you know, let's call it personal training, but I, I think that personal approach is incredibly personal. And I think what's important is actually finding the right person who works for you, uh, who can actually get inside you, can who can really understand you to get the best out of you. I think that's far more important than than, than looking for you know looking for a well-known trainer or looking for the most expensive trainer, um, because actually it's not about. It's not about profile or money. It's about the person that works for you.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what are you spending most of your time doing at the moment then?
1: <laughs> Being locked in, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean it's, it's busy. Um, so I'm, I'm a board member at UK Active, which is the, the representative body for, for the health and leisure, uh, fitness and leisure sector in the UK. So I'm liaising quite closely with them and with government. So with number 10, DCMS, um, Public Health England, SAGE, on the reopening. So, so we, we set the criteria for the reopening of, of the fitness sector, so gyms, et cetera, um, prior to the, to the last lockdown or the current lockdown. Um, so there's an awful lot of time. And actually, I do an awful lot of writing for them. So I write a, a, an opinion piece. I've written sort of five or six opinion pieces in a, in a blog series about the area. And about the role of physical activity in that, um, I still have research students. So one of my students just recently graduated a PhD, um, and we're still publishing work in in peer reviewed journals. So that that's that work still on goes. Um, I, I, I'm still writing. Um, we're still doing quite a lot through the media, whether it's radio or TV. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it, it's it's busy. It's mm. it's a bit more bitty than it normally is. Yeah. A, because actually, the, I think one of the, the big things about lockdown for many people is actually the loss of structure uh, has been really quite difficult psychologically. Yeah. Um, and I think because of that, it's quite difficult to plan because we don't know, we don't know what's coming up, when it's going to end, what we, what we can plan for. So I think to some extent, what that has driven is a, an awful lot of anxiety and stress in society. Um, so I, I spend an awful lot of time trying to, as best I can, is to structure and plan. Uh, under the sort of under the restrictions of what we've currently got because even you know all of us are affected by it and 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 I I live as I breathe and that is that I you know I do think that planning and structure to our lives is really very important for our mental health yeah yeah absolutely
0: well you've kind of preempted the 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 last thing I wanted to ask you really and that was you know
1: how, how do you look after yourself I, I i guess to some extent i practice what i preach um and i think it would be utterly immoral <laughs> not to do that you know so i mean f- physical activity exercise sport is is central to my life um and so at, every day um, i'll probably have one rest day a week but every day well I, I don't have a rest day from activity i'm active every single day whether that's solo or with with the family um but I so I, I it's either on the rowing erg, it's out on my bike, it's out running. Um the one thing I'm really missing is swimming. Yeah. It is I'm I'm in the river, but it's you know at six degrees C it, it, it's not yeah, it's not the fun place it could be. But uh well, <laughs> but yeah, so, incredibly physically active. Um I think nutritionally with with really sticking to it. My wife is amazing, she does a, an inc- incredible job. Um I try and cook occasionally. Uh the reason why you don't see me on cooking shows is I'm, I'm, I'm no Fanny Craddock. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the older audience, if they remember Fanny Craddock. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think eating well. I think, you know, moderating alcohol consumption. It, you know, I, I did a, a, um, a series of, of posts on my social media, on Instagram in particular, on bulletproofing your immune system. And one of the things that's really important during this COVID crisis is immunity. And we know that, that with, with a, a robust functioning immune system, that we have a much better chance of reducing infection, reducing the severity of that infection. So therefore, you know, deleterious outcomes. So I think things like sleep, optimizing sleep and recovery, absolutely crucial. In, improving gut microbiome, uh, particularly through our diet, but reduction in alcohol. Um, I'm not a smoker, have never been a smoker, but certainly cessation of smoking. Um, being as physically active as we possibly can, reducing caffeine against one of those, kept being careful not to use quick fixes for low energy levels. Don't, you know, don't go for the sugary snack and the processed sugar really is a problem for us. Um, and, and, and using caffeine to try and give us the energy we're looking for. And I think it's actually just, in, in that sense, when I talk about structure, it, in, in essence, what we can do is actually employ that structure across a day. And set those short-term goals of, of what we're trying to achieve with our rest and recovery, with our gut microbiome, with our nutrition, with our physical activity. And all of a sudden, what we, what we can, although although we can't, I can't do seven marathons on seven continents at the moment. But what I can do is I can actually set short-term goals for physical activity today, this week, this month. And so I think it, it's just bringing that back, back to effectively practicing what I preach. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, they're awesome tips, um, you know, particularly I, I don't think there's been enough out there on what people can do to boost their or to look after their immune systems. I think that that's so key um, that that link, I don't think has been made anywhere near enough. So brilliant that you, you've raised that. And, and listen, you know, we've covered a lot of ground um, in, <laughs> in this chat and it's it's been awesome. Um, and, and we could go on and on and on. Um but where, so let's not, people, though. Let's not. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> people are, people are switching off. <laughs> yeah, people are switching off. So, your your social media handles.
1: Yep. Um, so on Instagram, I'm at Prof W. <clears throat> on Twitter, I am at GP White. Um, it's a long story on that, but I've been on Twitter a long time and <laughs> didn't really understand the handle thing in the past. <laughs> um and but you can also find me on facebook uh, and then actually you know one of the best portals is is the whiteanswer.com which is my website where actually you can inter- interact on there and you can ask questions and and uh, and delve into some of the, the a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about brilliant that's
0: superb greg thanks again it's been superb
1: and well, uh, thanks, thanks for having me on i really appreciate it and, and i've really enjoyed it good
0: good stuff and we'll we'll get these uh, we'll get these messages out there Good stuff. Take care. Stay healthy. Cheers. Cheers.